0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And yes, once again, we're talking about Activision Blizzard and its pending, question mark, acquisition by video game and tech giant Microsoft. If you haven't been following along with this story, please do check out our playlist, Microsoft Times Activision, in which we've gone over almost every detail of this story as it has come out. Now, there are significant updates today. I've named this video Time to Worry for a reason, but before we get into those specifics, I do want to point out that this is a user, listener, viewer-supported channel. We have Utreon, which you can go support the channel on. We have Patreon, which you might be a little bit more familiar with, and if you do support us at certain tiers, you get called out. Like Nord here, who I want to give special thanks to for supporting the channel for many, many, many months. I am very appreciative of it. If you want to be like Nord, please do check out those support avenues. And now let's talk about whether or not it is time to worry about Microsoft and Activision. In our most recent video in the Microsoft Times Activision playlist, we talked about a letter that four senators, U.S. senators, put forth to the Federal Trade Commission, who we know is currently reviewing this deal, to effectively advocate for the fact that if labor power, if unionization power, if employee power is reduced at the company after Microsoft buys Activision, then the FTC should consider turning down the deal, opposing it. And in that video, I talked about the fact that that was a little bit beyond the FTC's purview. I also, however, mentioned that these senators clearly knew who they were talking to. And we're going to look at that as well in this video, because after this letter was released, we got a confidential report published by a website called The Information, entitled Microsoft Activision Review to Include Impact on Consumer Data, Game Developers. And it opens like this. This is all paywalled, so I will link it. But we've also got a summary of a few bits of this in Video Games Chronicle as well. Federal regulators reviewing Microsoft's proposed $69 billion takeover of Activision Blizzard are looking beyond the access Microsoft's rivals will have to popular games like Call of Duty to such issues as the deal's impact on consumer data and the market for game developers, according to people familiar with the review. Now, as always, we have to take anonymous sourcing with a grain of salt. Presumably people familiar with the review are some folks that are affiliated with the Federal Trade Commission in some capacity, but we don't know what tilt they have. We don't know what agenda they have. We don't know what level of information they have. Ironically enough, so we have to take it with that grain of salt. The companies expect a long, difficult path to approval, having set a deadline of July 2023 for a deal announced in January. It's not really a deadline, it's an anticipated date. And we can assume that they expected to have to go through a review process. I don't know that we can also assume that that was expected to be a long, difficult review process, but that's really just editorialization by the information here. The review is notable as one of the first major tech investigations entirely directed by Federal Trade Commission Chair Lena Khan, in which a majority of commissioners will likely be aligned with her. And Lena Khan is the brand new director of the FTC. She's featured on the thumbnail to this video. She is, I believe, the youngest FTC director to ever be appointed to that position. And uh, she made her hay writing about tech giants and how the antitrust laws of the United States are insufficiently either written or used to combat those tech giants. It's one of the reasons I flagged Microsoft times Activision as a potential problem almost immediately. You can check out our playlist for a video where I talk about the political and regulatory environment saying, hey, if the FTC does want to make hay here, because Microsoft's a big ticket name to have on the other side of a potential lawsuit, from the commission, then they could look at things like, and I had kept to the ordinary understanding of antitrust laws, I said, hey, you're going to find a market that has consumer harm in it. And I said, well, if you jacked up the price of Game Pass because you were able to kill nascent competitors, that's the kind of thing that the FTC could act on. I said, hey, cloud computing services, subscription video game services, that might be the kind of thing that could be addressed. Here, as the information says, A focus on consumer data is interesting. That suggests a certain concern at the Federal Trade Commission that just acquiring more data, more analytics, more information from a publisher like Activision could potentially harm someone. Could harm the consumers, certainly, but that's not generally what we talk about with respect to competition standards. Right. We talk about consumer welfare in broad strokes to mean price and quality of goods and services to actually say consumer data consolidation is going to harm that for consumers is uh, a little bit of an attenuated argument. But we'll see exactly why Lena Kahn has signaled that that's what she's going to look at in her own letters to the FTC. They also suggest the market for game developers might be impacted. And that's exactly what we saw referenced by Senators Warren and Booker and Sanders saying, hey, this could harm the ability of employees to effectively organize. It's going to harm their ability to have empowerment against their employers. But again, when we talk about jurisprudence, you'll see Lena Kahn and the FTC really runs up against it. So we're going to talk about Microsoft Times Activision. We're also going to be talking pretty in-depth about the FTC and American Jurisprudence on how to read these very vague bits of law. As I promised, VGC actually summarized a little bit here. Uh, Lena Kahn will examine the deal with an eye to the combined company's access to consumer data, the game developer labor market, and the deal's impact on those workers who have accused Activision of discrimination and a hostile workplace. So as I said in my earlier video, those are stakeholders. Those are people invested and interested in whether Activision Blizzard continues in the way it has been, whether it gets purchased by Microsoft. It is not the consumer of Activision Blizzard products. It is not what we generally think of as those benefited by competition. In fact, if you have labor markets actually competing with each other for employment at various companies, you'll have their prices go down, right? If supply goes up in game developers, then that price of salary goes down. And we actually see that it's a rockstar type profession where you get some kind of benefit from having your name on a game or saying I worked at Blizzard or Activision or something along those lines. But enough people want one of those jobs that it doesn't pay as much as a similar kind of job in a serious software industry or business. So you already have that happening in the video game market. It's a little bit odd to see the FTC kind of take up the senator's arguments here and say, well, maybe Microsoft is becoming some kind of monopsony buyer of labor services and can affect those prices in a way that is untoward. When, as we pointed out in that last video, Microsoft is going to have very small percentage of the total game development jobs available and game development is historically the kind of job where you can go and create your own shop. You can otherwise compete with the big boys at a very small level. You've got your Stardew Valleys. You've got your four-person development houses. You've got people leaving that started Activision. You've got people leaving that started uh, Respawn Entertainment. You've got people leaving that do these various things. uh, And so it's a very difficult thing for me to see on the outside as one who follows the industry as a monopsony labor market but the FTC is looking into it. The information also reports that the FTC is looking into the potential impact on a competitive metaverse following the acquisition. So this is that nascent competitor concept, right? This is, hey, it doesn't exist yet. Nobody realistically has a metaverse uh, at this point in time, but we see that said a lot. And so the FTC is looking into it uh, because Microsoft might be trying to position itself as the only place to get all of these various intellectual properties in a metaverse uh, for themselves, killing everybody else that could potentially compete with them. Now, as you've heard me say, and as you heard me say in the last video on this topic, I am at least somewhat surprised that they are going down this direction. But Lena Khan told the Congress, told people how to talk to her about these issues, right? We pointed this out in the last video. As she describes what she wants to do with the FTC, she says, we need to take a holistic approach to identifying harms, recognizing that antitrust and consumer protection violations harm workers and independent businesses as well as consumers. So consumer protection violations hurt more than just consumers. Antitrust hurts more than just consumers. Focusing on power asymmetries and the unlawful practices those imbalances enable will help to ensure our efforts are geared towards tackling the most significant harms across markets, including those directed at marginalized communities. Broadening our frame can also help surface the macro effects of our policy decisions, such as the relationship between market structure and supply chain fragility, or data consolidation and security vulnerabilities. So data consolidation might not just be anti-competitive, according to Ms. Khan here, but also present a certain venue for security vulnerabilities. You collect all that data in one place. It only takes one breach event, one hacking event to cause problems. Now that is all over and above what we usually see in respect of antitrust enforcement, right? Now, the FTC, it should be noted, is also in charge of preventing unfair competition. We talk about the FTC with respect to things like disclosures uh, for Twitter users and influencers when they're otherwise getting uh, sponsored and products, things like that. So the FTC has a bigger ambit than just antitrust, but by bundling them together in this fashion, They're rarely confusing the issue of what this HSR pre-merger review uh, is supposed to accomplish. She wants to say that timely intervention, be it checking anti-competitive conduct that would lead markets to tip or targeting unfair practices before they become widely adopted, can help us tackle problems at their inception. And we've heard this as well in the kind of reports that she has given to Congress in either her confirmation hearings or otherwise that suggests that she would rather err on the side of precautionary principle of having false negatives that maybe shouldn't have been blocked, shouldn't have things had to happen to them, because that way you'll prevent markets from tipping a little bit earlier than what would actually be a monopolistic event or otherwise that she wants to get out there in front that she thinks that the U.S. has predominantly been the opposite direction allowing things that are unclear as to be anti-competitive and she would go in the other direction. She also says, we need to address rampant consolidation and the dominance that it has enabled by scrutinizing dominant firms. Above all, we need to be intentional in how we direct our resources. Growing evidence suggests that market power now looks to be an increasingly systemic problem and there is a real risk that markets will become only more consolidated. Now, in that framework, what you've got from a political perspective is a notion that consolidated markets are inherently bad. Uh, and that's going to come up in how we see this kind of approach to reviewing a deal, Microsoft times Activision, actually determined by the FTC, right? If, as we've talked about in the past, antitrust laws are very, very vague. It's no person engaged in commerce shall acquire the stock of another person engaged in commerce where the effect of such acquisition may be substantially to lessen competition or to tend to create a monopoly. What does it mean to lessen competition? What does it mean to quote unquote, tend to create a monopoly. This law in and of itself, just as written, is effectively forward-looking. It requires regulators, the FTC here, the Department of Justice in other cases, to prognosticate about what it means to tend to create an undefined term in monopoly. Similarly, the FTC's other ambit is just unfair methods of competition in or affecting commerce are hereby declared unlawful. What is fairness? What does unfair mean? And you've got decades and decades and decades of jurisprudence going into these questions. Similarly, Sherman, we just looked at Clayton. We just looked at the FTC's unfair competition law. Sherman says, it's unlawful to monopolize or attempt to monopolize or combine or conspire with any other person or persons to monopolize any part of the trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations. It's illegal to monopolize isn't actually what it says on the tin as interpreted by both the regulators and the Department of Justice and the judiciary here in the United States, right? The longstanding requirement for monopolization as described here is both the possession of monopoly power in the relevant market. And as we've talked about here in virtual legality, the willful acquisition or maintenance of that power as distinguished from growth or development as a consequence of a superior product, business acumen or historic accident. We do not make monopolies illegal, regardless of what this says here, because overall the thesis in the United States is that if you are just the best at making phones or the best at providing this specific software or this specific service, then we don't want to dissuade you from going out there and doing that because that is in effect. What competition is all about. If you kill your competitors with a better product at a lower price, getting to people faster, whatever it may be, the United States for decades and decades and decades has been okay with that. Now stakeholders, Lena Khan's analysis of antitrust kind of goes against this. And that's a fundamental problem because the FTC is not the final arbiter of this question right? You've got to go through the courts. The judiciary gets their say. The FTC is an executive branch. Those laws that are ambiguous that we just read, that's the legislative branch. And then you ultimately have to go through the judiciary, which as early as the 70s have said that these laws are about consumer welfare, right? If you go and you look at the case lines here, and I brought up one from the 90s about essentially trying to underprice gasoline which I figured was uh, a nice segue into 2022, you see all these references to how antitrust law is interpreted by the courts then and today. This is the courts. This is the Supreme Court. This is what will be binding upon any court that is analyzing an FTC legal suit to block Microsoft Times Activision. In deciding whether the plaintiff was injured by an anti-competitive aspect or effect of the defendant's behavior, care must be taken in defining competition. Competition consists of rivalry among competitors, but reduction of competition does not invoke the Sherman Act. That's the monopolization act, but this is all kind of tied together in one grouping of jurisprudence until it harms consumer welfare. Full stop, red sentence. Consumer welfare is maximized when economic resources are allocated to their best use and when consumers are assured competitive price and quality. Accordingly, an act is deemed anti-competitive under the Sherman Act only when it harms both allocative efficiency and raises the prices of goods above competitive levels or diminishes their quality. And then they quote another case that says below cost pricing is not anti-competitive in and of itself because although it causes allocative inefficiency, it brings lower aggregate prices in the market, which is what I said in that earlier video, right? If Microsoft types Activision, then this isn't going to happen, but if we pretend that we could know in a crystal ball in the future that Microsoft times Activision would Yes, it would reduce the labor force because there's going to be redundancies and 5,000 people are going to lose their jobs, but more video games are going to come out. They're going to be of a higher quality and they're going to be available to more people at potentially a lesser price. Then the antitrust laws as interpreted by the courts of the United States would suggest that that isn't anti-competitive at all. That the consumer welfare standard is what we base our analysis on because any other analysis is inherently dangerous for the United States government to pick winners and losers that isn't, however, how it's always been, right? So I pulled up a summary of a congressional hearings in 2019, uh, in March of 2019, and they are talking about, in Congress, potentially moving away from the consumer welfare standard. Or it's as described here, and we have to take this with a grain of salt, there's, there's a little bit of politicizing, a little bit of editorial here, but I think it's useful as kind of a framework. They, since 1979, the Supreme Court has focused on a consumer welfare theory of law. The consumer welfare theory has the advantage of focusing on the impact to consumers through the application of economic theory, but doesn't always have much to say about firms that occupy a dominant position in an industry while continuing to provide services to consumers cheaply or without any fee at all—a hallmark of many modern tech companies. Remember, when we think about this, Lena Khan was brought into the fold, was made chairperson because of a paper she did on tech companies, Amazon in particular, as being anti-competitive on these stakeholders' premises without technically being in violation of the antitrust laws as written today, right? That that's the problem fundamentally is that Congress has written these laws and in general, they don't actually apply as read by the courts to the situation at hand with big tech companies. It wasn't always this way, says this summary. Congress first passed the Sherman Act in 1890, definitely very up to date for our modern economy, in response to a growing number of corporate consolidations and public concern that these quote unquote trusts, that's why they were called trust busters, Threatened to impair the free market economy and undermine individual freedom. In the middle of the 20th century, the courts seized upon this legislative history and held that the purpose of antitrust law is to prevent the concentration of economic power in the hands of a few by keeping a large number of small competitors in business. That consolidation and power was in, in effect the problem in and of itself, regardless of how it might affect consumers. And you see that mirrored in Lena Khan's letter right? That there is a problem with consolidation in and of itself. And that's how, at least as this summary goes, the antitrust laws were read. And I don't know that this is actually uh, as clear of a summary as it might be. Antitrust is a mess throughout the history of the United States, at least since 1890, when the antitrust laws were first passed. It is possible, says this quote, because of its indirect social or moral effect to prefer a system of small producers that the antitrust laws as of 1945 from justice hand here could prefer just more producers regardless of whether or not that increases prices or makes it a problem for volume etc cetera, etc cetera. and in the 70s and into the 80s and the 90s and now you know four plus decades on the united states looked at their laws and said well if it's not helping, if it's increasing prices, if it's increasing whatever costs, and you're not looking at market efficiencies and consumer welfare, then you're essentially just picking who you want to see have a problem and who you don't. And that's not the way antitrust law should be read. So that's 1970s. As of the 40s, you had some different decisions. And this is kind of common for bodies of law in the United States and other jurisdictions. And then on March 5th, 2019, the Senate Judiciary Committee reopened the debate and the door to whether the United States should return to an earlier era of antitrust enforcement. Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton, urged to return to the days of the Sherman Act's early history. Antitrust is about protecting and fostering civil society and freedom from intimidation, whether from a giant government or giant corporations that know everything there is to know about them. Said another way, if you get too big, we should take you down just because. John Cuoco, a professor of economics at Northeastern University, likewise stated that concentration has been steadily rising and competition declining in a great many sectors of the economy and that the dominant technology companies in particular had engaged in binge buying. Cuoco urged enforcement of concentration and share thresholds And argued that the burden of proof should shift to the parties in cases involving mergers of large share firms in concentrated markets or where a company employed mergers to eliminate potential competitors and stifle competition. Consolidation in and of itself is a bad thing, regardless of whether or not it benefits consumers, according to Professor Quoca here. And again, you see that mirrored in what the FTC is saying, what the Department of Justice is saying, etc., But Douglas Melamed, a professor at Stanford Law School, suggested that while antitrust law could be improved, it is sound in principle and should be adjusted, if at all, only after careful study and only at the margins. According to Melamed, antitrust is not ultimately about dispersing power. It's not designed to make equal producers in the market. It is about economic welfare. He did, however, suggest rethinking the notion that false positives, mistaken determinations that the conduct or transaction in question was anti-competitive, are more serious than false negatives, mistaken determinations that the conduct or transaction was not anti-competitive. Again, leaning towards maybe it should be more robustly enforced, not as worried about false negatives. Joshua Wright, a law school professor at George Mason University, raised the most ardent defense of the consumer welfare standard. Wright characterized the anti-consolidation approach of early antitrust law as incoherent, with various goals often in conflict with one another. By contrast, Wright stated that the consumer welfare standard afforded federal enforcement agencies the necessary flexibility to expand and contract enforcement in response to sound empirical evidence, that a consumer welfare standard can at least be analyzed on an economic basis. You can do marginal price tests and the things that we talked about with respect to Epic versus Apple, and in other instances here in virtual legality, and everything else does have that winner's or loser's impact. This finishes off as a summary by saying it seems unlikely that at present Congress will attempt to modify the consumer welfare standard, and if so, how? But the fact that the hearing took place suggests the concerns over how the consumer welfare standard can suitably address antitrust issues in the information age may find an increasingly receptive audience and this is 2019, we now know that there are whole swaths of the Senate and the House looking at potentially making major changes to antitrust law. Part of the impetus behind the letter that these senators put forth was the fact that they have a bill in place that would just bar $5 billion plus transactions, wouldn't require the FTC to go to court, all these various things. And to be honest, while I have certain policy differences with what is in that proposed bill, and I don't think it has any chance of passing. I am all in favor of that being the methodology through which these laws are changed. They are legislative initiatives. They shouldn't be changed by the executive. They shouldn't really be changed by the judiciary. Now I point out here that these are all kind of ambiguous laws. Uh, In a perfect world, if we were just treating law exactly as computer code, I might have the judiciary just enforce it as written. What does it mean? It means anytime you might tend to create a monopoly, it's gone. What does Sherman mean when it says all restraints of trade are illegal? Basically, every contract is illegal. Congress, go fix it. Don't ask the court to actually perform legislative action on your behalf. But that's not the world in which we live. So the judiciary has determined what these laws mean for at least 40 plus years at this point in time, which puts it outside the ambit of Lena Khan and the Federal Trade Commission because they have to go and win a lawsuit. Which brings us to the problems with a letter like this one. And this is summarized by Skadden. This is one of the biggest law firms in the world. Uh, I interviewed with Skadden. I can't recommend taking a job at a place that has cots and showers for the time that you'll be spending in the office, uh, but to each their own. And they frame out this section of their summary as practical limitations on implementation of Chair Khan's policy priorities. Chair Khan describes the antitrust agenda outlined in her memorandum as robust, and the memo communicates her intention to attempt to reshape antitrust policy and enforcement. However, a revolutionary shift in antitrust enforcement by the FTC will face substantial practical challenges. Most significantly, the path to reshaping antitrust enforcement will be constrained by the substantial body of existing antitrust law and the need to convince a federal judge that the conduct in question is unlawful. Chair Khan's memo generally advocates for a new, more expansive, and quote-unquote holistic approach to identifying antitrust harms beyond the traditional focus on consumer welfare and price effects. However, courts have, and will likely continue, to rely on existing standards developed into the case law over many decades. Those standards focus on consumer welfare and predominantly price effects. Absent legislative change then, a practical gap will persist between Chair Khan's vision of refocused and more assertive antitrust enforcement on the one hand, and the law that would apply to any FTC enforcement action on the other. Lena Khan, every other regulator, not a king, not a queen, not fully in charge. That's how the government actually operates. That's an executive branch agency interpreting a legislative piece of lawmaking that will then again be interpreted by the judiciary branch, which we already know has said that the consumer welfare standard is how these things are to be interpreted as written presently. And so at bare minimum, if the FTC were to bring a case against Microsoft for a labor complaint or a data protection complaint or something quote unquote holistic, then we would have every expectation that if push came to shove and that went to litigation, Every court south of the Supreme Court of the United States would effectively have to deny the FTC's claims unless they were able to couch them in consumer welfare language and at least somewhat hide the ball as to what they were actually aimed at. Now, as I've talked about in the past, the threat of litigation, the threat of going through that process, even if you're Microsoft and you're convinced that the FTC is acting outside of its legislative ambit would cost money and time and publicity. And the FTC knows this, all regulators know this. So that's how they can get you to the table for a consent decree or a settlement. Say, we're gonna bring in litigation. We think there's a problem with the labor markets. We think there's a problem with data collection. We think there's a problem with cloud computing. More on that in just a second. Or something else that is more holistic than has usually been the standard. They can come in and say, well, if you don't want us to do that, you'll agree to X, Y, and Z as to how you are not going to operate in order for us to allow this deal to go through. That's worth noting that their power is constrained in a fashion that other jurisdictions don't constrain them, right? Unlike regulators in other jurisdictions, says Scadden, the FTC must file a lawsuit and prevail in court if the agency wants to block a pending transaction. Other regulators, particularly when we're talking about the EU or the UK or other folks around the globe, don't necessarily have to go through a court system, aren't operating under the same jurisprudence and the same antitrust laws. So while they are similar in nature, they aren't the same. And that's why you get more aggressive action in places like the European Union, which brings us up to a tangential, but not entirely different consideration that Microsoft is going through effectively right now. So about three weeks ago, we get a Reuters article that says Microsoft faces EU antitrust complaint about its cloud computing business. This was brought by what appear to be European competitors. The complaint, filed with the European Union's competition watchdog months ago, alleges that Microsoft's contractual and business practices make it costly and difficult for users of its cloud computing services to opt for those of a competitor. This kind of mirrors what we saw with Google and Android and Epic and Apple and the way they kind of tie their services together and whether or not that's a problem. The quote says, through abusing its dominant position, Microsoft undermines fair competition and limits consumer choice in the cloud computing services market. Now, it should be noted that this isn't video games right now. This is actual giving of cloud services that Microsoft and Amazon are dominant in. The EU responds to this a week or so later, says, we're not too worried, right? Cloud computing in which Amazon and Microsoft are the biggest players followed by Alphabet's Google doesn't pose competition concerns yet because of Europe's Gaia X initiative, EU antitrust chief uh, Margaret Vestager said on Monday. And yet... This very week, we saw the EU actually give a questionnaire to Microsoft saying, hey, we've heard some things. EU's antitrust regulators are quizzing Microsoft's rivals and customers about its cloud business and licensing deals in a move that could lead to a formal investigation and renewed scrutiny of the US software company. The company found itself on the EU competition enforcers radar again after German software provider Nextcloud, France's OVH Cloud, and two other companies filed complaints against Microsoft's cloud practices. The commission has information that Microsoft may be using its potentially dominant position in certain software markets to foreclose competition regarding certain cloud computing services. Again, this isn't video games. This is overall the giving of cloud services. But we can see exactly how the purchase of giant content publishers to effectively help them sell a service like Game Pass, which has a cloud computing component, could be interpreted against them. With this as the background, regulators asked if the terms in Microsoft's licensing deals with cloud service providers allow rivals to compete effectively. They also want to know if companies needed Microsoft's operating systems and productivity applications to complement their own cloud infrastructure offering in order to compete effectively. Are you bundling things? these things? Are you mandating that you use Microsoft services? And in that environment where the EU is quizzing, potentially going to investigate something like this, and you have a service where you talk about, hey, we're going to publish cloud native games through Xbox Game Studios Publishing. We are acquiring more content to compete on Game Pass, which has a cloud services component to it that you can start to get in trouble if you are Microsoft and if these regulators are inclined to look at it. We have only a couple of weeks ago seen that the EU regulators aren't terribly concerned about cloud computing services, at least in public, but then sending that questionnaire thereafter. We've got senators in the United States saying, hey, check out labor power, right? We've got information that says they are going to check out labor power. They are going to check out consumer data. They are going to be impacted potentially by Activision's employees, Activision's situation, and whether or not this acquisition somehow harms that labor power rather than just the consumer welfare standard. And while that might not survive judiciary scrutiny, and in fact, I don't think that it actually would without a legal change right? I'm all for the senators going and pushing for a change in the law. That is what senators should do. That is what Congress people should do. But until that law is changed, it's pretty much inappropriate or at least uh, Sisyphean, for the Federal Trade Commission or a regulator to try to reinterpret it on their own when you have decades of jurisprudence saying the opposite. I am in favor of moves to change the law if that is what the people's representatives and the state's representatives want to be done, I'm far less in favor of an executive agency ostensibly operating under the laws that it has been given, changing that interpretation on the fly. So Microsoft might not be impacted on a judicial level on this, but if the FTC really is looking at these things, that suggests that there is a higher percentage chance than I originally gave it, that they are going to come to the table and ask for a more significant settlement or consent decree than I had originally anticipated. Now, Microsoft is going to want to get this thing done. He's probably okay with a certain list of things that might be asked of it in a settlement or consent decree. But materially, the chance of a consent decree being requested of a settlement agreement between these two parties has gone up with the knowledge that they are looking beyond what I would have originally anticipated in an ordinary antitrust competition review. So as of right now, we're going to reduce it to 70-30. It's like the clock uh, about midnight <clears throat> for uh, nuclear weapons and things like that. But 70-30 right now, I don't think people should be super concerned about the deal. Uh, but this certainly does express that Lena Khan is going to put her money where her mouth was with respect to things like looking at deals holistically, seemingly regardless of whether or not the judiciary would ultimately wind up backing her up. That has been Virtual Legality for today. If you do enjoy conversations about business and law, technology, software, video games, FTC review, and more, please consider supporting the channel at Utreon or Patreon, or if neither of those appeal to you, please do just subscribe and tell your friends that we're having these conversations. Again, special thanks to Nord for sponsoring this episode this month. And if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.